Well, welcome wherever you are, however locked down you are. We're up to episode 53. Sorry, no, it's at 63. You're, you're trying to make us younger than we are, Hugh. Yeah, well, we've got to try something, <laughs> don't we, PBO? It's, yeah, um, that's true. I think, uh, the head's in a spin, let's just put it that way, and I think that, that uh, it's, it's worse for, for many, many others. So, so here we are. We've got stage four lockdowns across Melbourne, stage three lockdowns as we speak across rural Victoria, regional Victoria, staff from midnight um, to the dismay of many, uh, deep concern across the country, state borders closed. Uh, some hints, PVO, of uh, some help for something that Labor's been calling for a long time, and that is extension of paid pandemic leave. Let's mm. perhaps start with that. Yeah, look, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's the PM is, has now announced paid pandemic leave for Victorians. And in a nutshell, it's $1,500 over, over two weeks. I think the Commonwealth are paying for all citizens and the state government out of Victoria are going to pay for non-citizens, you know, people on visas to be eligible as well. That's been one of the bugbears in, in some of these entitlements and schemes of, of assistance that they haven't extended, not just to casuals who are citizens, but certainly to a whole host of non-citizens in various areas of job keeper and, and so on. So that's the, the, the essence of what's being provided. The way they've done it is they've done it as part of a disaster package, which means Victorians get it because the state premier has declared it a disaster, uh, as it clearly is. Other states become eligible either if they declare it a disaster or if they approach the Prime Minister directly uh, to try to become eligible even without a, a formal state of disaster declared. He was talking about that on, on morning television as he was yeah, selling so, the so basically, so, Yeah, so basically what he's, what he's saying is it's not that procedurally complex. Basically, if a premier contacts him and says, gee, I could do a little bit of that paid pandemic leave uh, because it helps prevent transmission, it means that people well, are not going to work sick, etc." He'll say, yeah, right, you are. Yeah, I actually don't understand why uh, the horse has to bolt before you actually look to put this in place because it isn't the whole, intuitively, the whole point of paid pandemic leave to ensure that we don't end up in a situation like Victoria is in in other states because you don't want people who are getting tested and awaiting those results to feel because of an economic imperative compelled to go to work when quite obviously they shouldn't do that. They should stay home uh, as per any normal sick situation, particularly because of the contagion of this virus. So I, I would have thought, yeah, it's great that they're doing it for Victoria because we know how many people have been found to not be home when they should be at home self-isolating. You don't want a bad situation to get worse but you don't want a situation to get bad in other states because they're not imposing this paid pandemic leave ahead of a crisis, I would have thought. But it also goes to, as, as uh, Daniel Andrews has pointed out, to the issue of insecure uh, employment, where mm. it's not just if you test, you have to you know, self-isolate until you get those results back. Um, but it's also, it's that little sniffle. And this has been one of the, uh, you know evil aspects of this particular pandemic is that lots of people can carry it with very minor or no symptoms. And so if you're working, you've got insecure employment, you've got that slight scratch at the back of the throat, but it's not anything you can easily say, that's nothing, that's nothing. Um, your inclination might be to go to work and infect others because you have it. Uh, they found that 90% of people held off when the first suspicion mm. that they had symptoms 
um, they would still go to work for some time before they would then go, oh, maybe I should go get a test. So paid pandemic leave, particularly for the insecure employed, and they're a hell of a lot and growing sector of, the, of our community, it means that you can put up your hand and say, look, I'm not coming in. I'm, I don't feel that stress to go there. The money will tide me over. And, and that is the way in which you get on top of these exploding yeah. numbers. Why has it taken so long to get to this? Because Labour and, and, and some in the medical field have talked about this now for yeah. months. Oh, yeah. Well, and yeah, the Labour Party formally adopted it as their policy through Shadow Cabinet last week. But as you say, for weeks before that had been discussing it. So have the Greens, so have large corners of the medical fraternity. To answer your question from government ministers that I've spoken to behind the scenes, they were concerned about more cash outlay on something that in their view, could be quite easily rorted is too strong a word. Uh, ironic from the party that brought us the latest sports rorts affair. But uh, in that vicinity, the idea that it's very easy for people to be able to just say, you know what, I'm not going in, uh, here's why, and therefore give me my paid pandemic leave. Now, I don't want to overstate their cynicism about that because that was their concern. Well, and, and look, but, but, they, for, but they're also right. They're also right, though, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's, it, that's, some people will. There's always, as we've seen, there's always some who will behave badly and some will say, beauty, I can get paid and not go to work. Yeah, I think that's right. So, look, there will definitely be, you know, rotten, if you like, or misuse of the system. But in the current pandemic, that's a lesser of evils uh, is, is ultimately where they landed. Uh, and that's where I've been for a while and I think other people have as well. It's a lesser of evils because frankly and you know you know we don't condone the bad behavior and putting other um, work colleagues at risk and all the rest of it but i tell you what i really understand people in jobs that are insecure that are casual uh, where they can lose those jobs at the drop of a hat not to mention the income that goes with it on a day-by-day basis i really understand their decision making around their family finances that would see them taking the chance because first up the odds we know are low right that you've got it just based purely on the on on the maths uh and what isn't low for people in those job situations is the reality that they might get fewer casual shifts as a result of it from an employer who's perhaps unscrupulous or just decides that they're too hard work and that's before we even consider the money that they miss out on you know people who are working in these casual roles can't afford to miss one two three much less two weeks worth of you know 14 days worth of of actual work that they might otherwise have had during a period of staying at home to ensure that the sniffle that might have been driven by the cold wasn't actually driven by the coronavirus. So I've got a lot of sympathy for it. And that's why, notwithstanding the capacity for it to be misused, it's a lesser of evil to have it because those people otherwise are going to do what we are seeing them doing. And there's no surprise in that because they just have to make a calculated call based on feeding their families. I know that sounds dramatic, but it is absolutely true, Hugh. It's funny because one of the things that this whole um, disaster has brought home is the degree to which the casualization of the workforce has, has essentially come to consume the workforce. I met a woman mm. uh, a couple of weeks ago who had been a, uh, for two decades a uh, university, she called it, you'd know more about it, the sessional lecturer. Um, oh, basically, yes. you know, a casual lecturer at the university system, as lots of jobs have been going out of the university uh, system, her entire department was closed down. Now, she had had a situation where she'd been in a relationship with someone uh, and they'd at one stage owned a house together, but she was the major earner. The relationship ended. Uh, she didn't have enough left out of that uh, from the, the sale of the house to um you know, to, to sort of buy another one. She was renting, and while she was working, she was renting. Now she's lost her job, and she is 
considers herself lucky because she's in social housing. And this is a woman who is, who is working towards a PhD, uh, who is lecturing in universities in her particular field for a long time, skilled at what she did. And she's not what you think of necessarily as the highly vulnerable one catastrophe and you're, and you're basically on the streets or just one above it. Um, you know, th this is a thing which concerns me is that this has been, it's a bit like wood rot in the house. You don't notice it until something comes and shakes your house. And then you realize that so many people are living in this country, uh, really even through the, the relatively yeah. good times of the past with extremely vulnerable um, financial, personal financial circumstances, uh, even though they're bright, they're working, everything seems on the surface to be fine. Yeah, and, and not, not aware in the good times of the risks, if that flips, of their casual employment. Because quite often in good times, casual employment is, is something that you know, some people can take significant advantage of and good luck to them. Yes, you don't get your sick leave provisions, you don't get your annual leave, but you get a higher loading uh, you've got the capacity to upscale and downscale how much you're doing to suit you. Now, in good times where there is a surplus of work available, that's great. But in the downturn times, it's always the casuals, of course, who are the first to go because businesses can look at their books and making people redundant who are full-time or part-time and have redundancy provisions. That's the tough stuff. Uh, whereas the casuals can be let go instantaneously with no payouts. And, and the university workforce here that you talk about is exactly in that category. I mean, what's happening there because universities are getting hammered at the moment without eligibility for JobKeeper, without the kind of federal assistance they're all crying out that they need. What's happening is research funding becomes the first thing to fall away because they have to fund the teaching of students because that's their bread and butter. When the research funding falls away, all the academics who are full-time academics who are doing research and buying themselves out of teaching to do the research, that buyout capacity goes which means that A, they stop doing their research, so we'll plummet down the world rankings, but B, instead of doing that research, they go back to their core business, which is teaching, which means all those casual lecturers that you mentioned who are getting employed ordinarily to teach while the full-time academics are doing more research, they are all just shoved straight out the door because the full-time academics are taking over their teaching loads again. That's, that's the domino effect, if you like, of the government not supporting the university sector that has direct employment consequences. One area in which all of these issues could be debated and normally would be debated is in Parliament. Uh, there is no Parliament sitting. Uh, Anthony Albanese has formally called. He's written for a resumption of Parliament this month, the month of August. Uh, can it be justified that in the middle of a, a, a situation where one of our most populous states is in a state of actual disaster, uh, when households, businesses, everyone is feeling the strain on one level or another, it cannot be justified that there is no sitting of, of the federal parliament. Absolutely not. Not in a million years. Let me explain why, and then you can either agree or disagree with me, but I tell you what, I, I'm red hot on this. Parliamentary democracy and the sitting of parliament within a parliamentary democracy is a absolutely fundamental cornerstone of what it's all about, first up. Secondly, sure, it's a pandemic and that there are and can be risks attached to that. In the 1919 pandemic, as well as the pandemic in the mid-50s, Parliament sat and it was much more risky times and more deadly times in both those instances than it appears to be this time. In World War I and in World War II, Parliament sat. Uh, if there's an issue, as the Chief Medical Officer identified when giving advice to the Prime Minister, 
look, the Prime Minister gilded the lily a bit on this. The Chief Medical Officer isn't saying Parliament can't sit. The Chief Medical Officer is saying, here are the risks. And then the Prime Minister says, okay, well, then Parliament won't sit. What could have happened is like is happening in a million other professions. MPs either could be completely excluded from the Melbourne hot zone, or if that's not good enough and pairing them off, they could turn up, but they could turn up and go into quarantine for 14 days, like other people are expected to do, like they're expecting health workers to do on a daily basis out of Victoria from their own families, like you, Hugh, have done for your wife's well-being and that of your family and continued working throughout this pandemic at different moments in time. This is something that can be achieved. And guess what? Even if all of that can't be achieved, then go virtual and have Parliament sitting virtually because that's what's happening in the UK. That's what's happening in other countries. That's what the National Cabinet's doing. That's what the Cabinet's doing. That's what the Expenditure Review Committee's doing. And that's what the National Security Committee are all doing. They're all sitting virtually and there are less problems with a virtual sitting of Parliament in terms of security and maintaining of confidentiality than they are in some of those bodies that have cabinet confidentiality because parliament is an open forum. So people can listen in, the public can listen into these meetings, however they were conducted virtually, and there is no reason not to. So at every single level on the way, it is a joke that parliament isn't sitting. It is a joke that is beyond a joke. And it would be funny if it weren't serious because this is about democracy and holding the government to account. There has never been a more important time for Parliament to sit than during the kind of totemic decision-making that we're seeing now. And I know there's games that go on in the Parliament and that people, a lot of people, even listeners now, are probably thinking, ah, it's no big deal if Parliament sits. It's a cultural rot, ladies and gentlemen, if Parliament doesn't sit, because the whole point is that executive government marches on uh, and therefore becomes less adroit to the idea that it should be accepting the answering of questions. We see the PM going, on television this morning uh, answering questions. I tell you what, he won't answer questions in the parliament, which he's canned, but he's answering the questions of television hosts. Uh, what a joke. I- I'm just disgusted by it, to be perfectly honest. Carl Stefanovic is the, uh, is the leader of the opposition at the moment, although a particularly friendly one <laughs> to the prime minister. Look, uh, I uh, completely agree with you. I think it's necessary. I read with interest the comments of Sean Kelly, a, a thoughtful uh, Labour, former Labour apparatchik, he used to work for Gillard and Rudd, um, saying that one of the advantages of, of Parliament is, like it or not, it is an early warning system. Uh, sometimes your enemy tells you stuff or alerts you to stuff that you can act on sooner. And if you if you ignore them for longer, then it, it tends to be a bigger crisis when you act. Uh, there can be no justification, in my view, for there not be parliamentary sitting. Two points that come to my mind. One is that uh, there is no public outrage of it that indicates that to me the years of uh, everyone kind of um, deriding parliament and parliamentarians in the end weakens the institution Uh, if we want it to be valuable then we should give it at least some modicum of respect at all times that it is a process that we all have an attachment need an attachment to but the other element to this is um, i agree with you totally it can be done so therefore it is not being done and that's a choice uh, despite, you know, the, the, if you like, the fig leaf of the, of the medical advice, um, why it's plainly not doing Scott Morrison's po- personal popularity any harm for Parliament yeah, not to be sitting. Is it as cynical as that, that he simply sees an opportunity not to be held to account and no one seems to mind and his popularity is up high? Why would you break a deal like that? Yeah, I mean, I know we're going to take a break in a moment, but I, I think that's exactly right, Hugh. I think that it, were he seeing 
polling evidence that the public was aware of this and, and, and disturbed by it. I think Parliament will be back in an instant. But he's popular. Uh, it, it suits executive government to be less accountable to the parliament. Uh, there has been an ever-increasing brushing aside of the value of parliament in recent decades anyway. And this pandemic has just, if you like, accelerated uh, and, and increased the, the, the moment in time of that. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's just not good enough. I mean, and we should say here, uh, we've had similar, I mean, I know that the upper house sat in Victoria just recently, but the Victorian government hasn't been sitting either. It's not quite for me, as disturbing as a Commonwealth government not sitting, but that's you know the other side of politics making the same call down there with Daniel Andrews, and I've got a problem with that too. Uh, but you know, let, let me let, before we take the break, let me just say this: John Pyme, he's one of the 17th century British founders of parliamentary democracy. He said this: he said a parliament is that to the Commonwealth which the soul is to the body. Now I'm not a religious man, Hugh, but I tell you what that is something that Scott Morrison should educate himself on. And so should Australians, frankly, if we're not holding him to account for suspending parliamentary democracy because it's not good enough. On that lofty note, uh, PVO, let's take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment. 10 Speaks' latest podcast, 10 News First Person, will bring you amazing stories from all over the country, stories that matter from journalists with passion. I'm Meralda Jacobs, and I'm proud to present these stories to you. You can find 10 News First Person on the 10 Speaks page on 10 Play or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to uh, episode 63 of The Professor and the Hack, and I am the Hack. I'm Hugh Remington, and with us is the uh, the Professor, Peter Van Onselen, a network political editor for Channel 10. Um, so much more to talk about. Uh, let's trip through some of these issues. Borders um, mm. are a complex issue. They're a constitutional issue. <laughs> it turns out to be uh, a difficult one for the Prime Minister. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, it was interesting, wasn't it, that, you know, for weeks and weeks, we heard about Clive Palmer's plan to have a high court action uh, supported by Pauline Hanson, not formally, but, you know, she had a similar view uh, about the hard border that WA had put in place and, and, and his outrage at it and his plan to challenge it. And the Commonwealth Government, which always has a right to join high court actions as a constitutional matter, uh, we'd long heard from both the Prime Minister and the Attorney General, Christian Porter, that they would be joining Clive Palmer's action, believing that what Mark McGowan as the WA Premier was doing was uh, you know, unconstitutional and they'd be fighting that fight. Uh, the only two states to have hard borders throughout have been Tasmania and WA and the hardest of them has been WA, so hence the High Court action by Clive Palmer. But all of a sudden, you know, the Prime Minister decided, you know what, the, the times are not a right for this. Suddenly, you know, six months into the pandemic, uh, he issues a release saying, I think it's time for some pa- pandemic solidarity we're not going to go down the path of this cha- of supporting this High Court challenge anymore. Uh, you've got to ask why. I think two things are at play. One is the reality that in WA, it's a popular decision by Mark McGowan, and Mark McGowan is the most popular of all the premiers with a 90% approval rate. I've never seen anything like it. It's extraordinary. But the second element to it is the timing of that challenge couldn't be any worse now, could it? Because talk about being able to meet at National Cabinet as they are on this Friday and say, I told you so, Prime Minister, because look at what's happened, you know, Victoria has had a second wave. New South Wales never shut its borders to Victoria until that second wave was already under, uh, you know, happening. Uh, and it's the state most at risk of contagion from Victoria. South Australia opened its borders up uh, on the catch cry of 
their politically similar party at the federal level and the prime minister, and they've now got some concerns. Anastasia Palaszczuk had been beaten up in the media as well as in the partisan contest between the feds and, and her, particularly by Peter Dutton. She opens things up and look at some of the, the, the problems that have occurred as a consequence. Uh, the states that are still doing A-OK are the very two states that have maintained that hard border structure, Tasmania and in particular WA. So I tell you what, if I was sitting there at National Cabinet, you don't want to be quite as infantile as this, but it would be very hard uh, to not to, to bottle up your feelings when talking to the Prime Minister and say, you've been running around demanding people open up borders for the sake of the economy and because it has to happen, hurrying, hurrying, hurrying. And now, egg all over your face, my friend, I hate to tell you, because, you know, harder border lockdowns would have guaranteed that the Victorian contagion didn't spread. Whereas at the moment, everyone's sitting around delicately poised, hoping that it wasn't too late and that it does spread. Well, you, you, you put a convincing argument, and I can tell you how convincing, that while you were speaking, even though we hadn't yet pumped out this podcast, uh, Queensland <laughs> has just announced that it's closing its border to all of New South Wales and the ACT from 1 o'clock a.m. this Saturday. So the borders are tightening. They're not loosening. One go. of the things which really struck me is I, I saw the press conference. I watched the press conference with uh, Scott Morrison when he was making the case for joining the constitutional challenge. And he had these extremely lofty um, terms around it about the, the duty on the Commonwealth to ensure that the Constitution uh, was being preserved in its intent and that, uh, that it was essentially inescapable that the, that the Commonwealth would have to uh, attach itself to this particular matter before the High Court. Uh, also on the advice that, in fact, the High Court would find, the High Court will so find, that, um, <laughs> uh, that in fact, WA was acting unconstitutionally. It seems, uh, you know, we'll see what happens with the court case, but uh, loftiness falls fast uh, when a bit of real politic comes in. The other element to it, of course, is that uh, the criticism, and, and this is something which troubles me a little bit, because we really don't need a lot of partisanship right now. And most people have been broadly pretty good about that. And yet, on the question of Queensland being constantly hammered for what it's doing with its borders, and then WA, uh, Labour-held states, Queensland obviously heading into an election pretty quick, pretty soon, whereas those Liberal states, South Australia and Tasmania, uh, which put the borders up, there didn't seem to be a problem with them. And so that's the that's something which concerns me a bit, is that what you see, if you pull back the veil a little bit, is still functioning through this process, just a pure partisan instinct at a time when, of all times, we don't need one. Yep, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, it is fascinating, isn't it? It, it, it uh, I mean... It's, it's funny because I feel like you, it's, it, you, you have to have it one way or the other if you're the Prime Minister, don't you? Either these lofty ideals are so important that you pursue it and you keep pursuing it, even if it starts to look like it's badly timed and so on in terms of the constitutional challenge, or you don't pursue it in the first place for the same reasons he's now saying that he's not pursuing it uh, because it's not the right time and he doesn't want sort of this, 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 this contest to become partisan by nature. But it has been. It really has been. And it has become like that. I, I, I just, I have to say, I marvel uh, and don my cap to the political capacity of Scott Morrison to be there in the right place when there's something important to say that's positive, but to go AWOL and get himself out of, uh, if you like, the risky questioning of what he said in the past when it backfires, like on the borders. He's very good at it. I mean, the, the, the board, it's almost like 
some of the premiers could, if they chose to, be very point blank with him about what he was saying on borders versus what is now actually happening uh, and the reality that the economic consequences of what is now happening is more risky uh, as a result of borders being opened up too soon. But they're not playing that game with him. And so he's getting away with it. And journalists probably aren't asking the question sufficiently enough either, I would probably suggest. So he's, he's skating through on this one. Yes, probably uh, learning something from the skills of uh, another politician from New South Wales and beachside uh, suburbs of Sydney, Bob Carr, back in the day, who was the master of uh, uh, master of being there for the good news and uh, and angry and angry uh, yeah. when there was bad news going around the place, and some poor hapless uh, public servant would be up there and <laughs> left to explain himself. So uh, let's shift internationally just for a moment, because I always like to try to keep an eye on what's um, what's happening uh, globally. We've got the uh, the election in the United States, mm. you know, time marches on. We're now within 90 days or whatever it is. Um, I don't know if you got a chance to see it, but um, if you didn't, the interview between Donald Trump and uh, uh, an Australian gallery colleague of old, Jonathan Swan. I Dr. haven't Norman seen it Swan. yet. Well, yeah, do. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm very interested in, in watching it. I've seen a lot of references to it online. Yeah, so uh, Jonathan Swan, who, when he was still a newspaper man at the Sydney Morning Herald, a young young guy who turned up in the Canberra Press Gallery, uh, he was getting some good scoops as a, a young guy, newly yep. arrived. And as anyone would know, they're hard to get scoops, particularly when you freshly arrived there. Um, and they, they weren't they weren't just drops from friendly ministers looking for publicity and so on. Uh, they were genuine scoops coming out of him. And I tried to hire him uh, to TV. Always a risk when you hire someone to TV when they <laughs> haven't actually had a go at that medium. But, of course, uh, it's a transition many have made. And I, I saw him as a tremendous talent. He politely declined uh, my kind offer. He had DC in his nostrils. He's turned up in Washington, DC. He's the son, of course, of Dr. Norman Swan, the ABC a medical reporter and a, a sort of a folk hero to some. Um, mm. And he's done this interview with Donald Trump, which in many ways, to my mind, recasts what a political interview is. I think this is an interview that will be studied in future. And I, I, I don't say that, you know, to sort of try to put up great pretentious constructs around this, but it is a remarkable piece of theater. Uh, I recommend it, Re watch the whole thing. It goes for 37 minutes. Because in the course of it, um, Trump seems quite at ease with, uh, with Jonathan Swan. And Swan, at various points, flatters him. He flatters him about his ability to draw crowds to his rallies. And he interrupts him constantly in, in a few points with flattery. But for mm. every bit of flattery, there is this quite blank scepticism and openly expressed scepticism. And what do you mean? And at one stage, Trump is sort of saying, oh, yeah, you know, I've done all the right things. You know, it's, 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 it's in all the manuals. He's going, manuals? Yeah, it's in, it's in all the books. You know, books? What books? What manuals? You know, these sorts of things which Trump uses, these sorts of uh, phrasings that he uses, which really have no meaning. There's no substance to them. He's being mocked in his own face in this um, interview process, but not in a way to the degree that it offends Trump. So that he then bristles and comes back at him and says, oh, you're fake news, you'll get out of here, I don't mind. That stuff, it works by holding this incredibly tenuous line between it being an interview and, and just mortal combat. At the end of it, you, you can sort of half think maybe it was a comedy sketch, maybe it was parody, but there's no escaping the fact that this was a real encounter 
between a, you know, a nobody reporter in the United States and the president of the United States. And um, at the end of it, you are, if you weren't already, uh, profoundly alarmed about the capacity of concentration and um, management of facts uh, in, seated in, in the president of the United States. And why that matters, I, I recommend everyone have a look at it, but why that matters is something that Kevin Rudd has, has written for a, a major foreign policy magazine, an article for it, and been interviewed about it a little bit, is that as we approach this election, as the numbers look more difficult for Trump, uh, there is a risk that get, gets greater that there could be uh, a desire to create a distraction in the form of some new conflict um, with, or at least more risky behavior towards China militarily. And, uh, and Kevin Rudd has, has blown the whistle on that, so have others. Um, do you have thoughts about that, whether that's on the radar around Canberra? Uh, whether that's a, a real and present danger that is being seen? I don't think it is, actually. Um, I mean, I, <coughs> not, not, not from... Are you okay there, Hugh? Hang on. S sudden concern. Sorry, sorry. My apologies. <laughs> a slight bit of COVID coming in. And there I was. I thought I was uh, muting the mic, but in fact, I pushed some button. There's not, nothing at all to it. So um, my apologies it's, to you there it, if it, I blew it, your eardrums off. Hugh, it's people like you hiding your condition and continuing to work. It's outrageous. No, obviously. It's, it's only when kidding. I bang on for a long I'm just time. Kidding I think I just for the record. For the record, yeah. everyone. <laughs> Where's my pandemic kidding. pay? I want it now. <laughs> um, now, look, I don't think it is um, on the radar. I tell you what's on my radar. I mean, I'm not meaning to switch subjects, but I'm staying on the US presidency. Uh, what's really on my radar, uh, and it might already have been announced by the time uh, some people are listening to this because it's very imminent, uh, is the decision by Joe Biden around his vice president. I mean, I'm fascinated uh, to see which way he goes on that and whether we all get a surprise or not. Um, you know, I, I mean, I know we're almost out of time in this podcast and, and we'll probably devote a lot of time to it post its actual announcement when we hear it to be able to discuss it. But I think it's going to be pivotal uh, both for Biden's chances as well as then for where the Democrats go thereafter and therefore, if he does win, where, uh, where the nation goes thereafter because he'll be 78, of course, at the time of the election. I mean, the, the view will be everyone will go into this election even if they want to get rid of Trump and, and basically see... Biden is a placeholder, and uh, and the vice, you know, there's a there's a real risk for a man of his age. Um, you know, he's not excessively old, but there is at least a risk as age goes on that uh, the vice president may have to step up at some point. Um, that's why the Sarah Palin decision to go as the vice presidential running mate to John McCain uh, back in 2008 was so catastrophically, you know, wrong for a whole bunch of reasons. But for that reason as well, people thought, my God, she could be the bloody president next minute. So people will look at this choice uh, with with enormous uh, interest and, uh, and, and there are huge risks there for Biden. But you're right, they will yeah. unpick it once it's happened. I think we're out of time. My apologies for coughing down an open mic. It is one of those terrible sins in radio, and it just shows me I don't even know what my kid is here. Um, <laughs> PBO, thanks again for, for, for taking the time, and, uh, and for you, if you're sticking with us uh, with this podcast, uh, we appreciate your, your loyal support. Uh, that is a professor in the hack. Stay well. Get your pandemic leave, and if you get a cough... <laughs> go get it looked at. Talk soon, Hugh. Take care. Take care.
You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.